The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the latest edition of 100, the Ed Gordon Podcast. Today, a conversation with ABC News correspondent Deborah Roberts. Since the 1990s, she's covered many of the world's top stories for both NBC and ABC. She has been decorated for her work, including winning numerous Emmy Awards, as well as the prestigious Peabody Award for her reporting on the killing of Breonna Taylor. Roberts has an upcoming book titled Lessons Learned and Cherished, The Teacher Who Changed My Life. She's been married to Today Show weatherman Al Roker since 1995. And a big special thanks to Deborah for keeping our interview. The day we were scheduled to talk, Al was recuperating at the hospital. And she took time out from being by his side, found a waiting room, and kept our appointment. We started off by talking about growing up in her home state of Georgia. You know, I'm a small town Georgia girl from a little town called Perry, south of Atlanta, down near Macon. A lot of people haven't heard of it, but it's like near the Warner Robins Air Force Base. Um, And, you know, I I grew up in a large family, nine uh, kids, eight siblings, uh, seven girls, two boys. And um, what's interesting is, and Al always, my husband Al, always finds this so shocking because he grew up in Queens. 
Um, and his experience was very different growing up. And he was, uh, he's obviously older than I am, but <laughs> he, he's shocked that I remember segregation. And mm. I was growing up at the very tail end of segregation, but I remember colored waiting room at the doctor's office. I remember going to the grocery store and seeing the very obvious distinction, you know, where if a, you know, a white person came along, you know, my mom would back off and let them go through the grocery line. Um, they're faint memories, but I do remember that. Now, as I was getting into school, desegregation was happening and just integration and, um, you know, school and teachers and friends and all of that, not thinking so much about that. But I do remember that and re remember what that was like watching my parents have to deal with that. But I also remember what it's like to, to um, you know, to feel sort of carefree and to have a, a you know, really lovely uh, family. You know, we were very close and, um, you know, church was always very important, you know, church every Sunday, um, Girl Scouts. I mean, all of those things that anybody would remember in their childhood. And so most of my memories are just those fun, carefree memories and, you know, fried chicken, collard greens and, you know, <laughs> chicken and dressing on Sunday morning. Yeah, I, yeah. Dressing. There's a real, there's a real Southern experience. I, I would go down uh, to Birmingham, Alabama quite a bit uh, when I was younger. Um, many of our relatives were in Birmingham. And then I spent a lot of time where you started your career in Columbus, mm -hmm. uh, Georgia. Uh, mm -hmm. My uncle retired military, Fort Benning. Uh -huh. um, so, so tell me a little bit about as you kicked the career in um, and, and, and did you always want to be a journalist? You know, it's interesting. I, I remember when I was growing up, I like, like everybody and there were so many people at that time, you know, the family dinner sometimes centered around the evening news. So we watched Walter Cronkite because CBS was the only network we could get because that was long before cable. And we watched every night, you know, the, the, the uh, reporters and, and the evening news and what was developing at that time. And I remember noticing uh, the diversity that was slowly beginning to happen in, um, you know, the 70s, I guess. And, you know, uh, Connie Chong had hit the scene. Um, Lim Tucker had hit the scene. Michelle Clark, a young black um, reporter who sadly was later killed in a plane crash, was there. And I remember watching and being intrigued by this. One of my cousins says, I always remember coming over with, and I was trying to get your sister and me to go out of the house and maybe try to slip out and go, you know, do something with some boys. And you were like glued watching the news. It was so funny. So I was captivated by it. And by the time I was in high school, I knew I wanted to do something, um, you know, not so much a newspaper reporter, but I wanted to do something that um, involved public speaking, maybe the news. I wasn't quite sure. And by the time I went to the University of Georgia, which was a big step for me because that was, you know, a big school. And, you know, I had grown up in small town, Georgia. I took my very first journalism class and I was smitten. Mm -hmm. I was like, wow, this is amazing. And I had these great professors who talked about the importance of this business and what it was all about and shedding light on, you know, dark subjects and all of that. So I knew then that was what I wanted to do. So I got a fire in my belly at the University of Georgia. I did internships at uh, Georgia Public Television and all of those things that you do to get ready. And one of my um, advisors, who was sort of a mentor at the time, helped me get my very first job at WTBM in um, Columbus, Georgia. WTBJ or WTBM? Because I worked at two different stations. One was WTBM and TV. I think it was WTBM, the ABC affiliate. And um, that was my first job in, in, in television. And, um, 
I knew the path was going to be local television, work my way up. I also knew that I had network television on my mind, but I had to pay my dues. And so that's kind of where it started. I'm curious as you look now, because you go from Columbus to Knoxville to Orlando and then to the network, which is traditional and and skipping to a higher market, a higher market. And then somebody notices you and says, hey, you should you should be at the network, young lady. Um, But when you look at journalism today, it is certainly different. Mm -hmm. I won't say good, bad or otherwise until I hear your answer. But it's certainly different than what you and I were taught. And what you and I uh, have been used to for many, many years. Give me a sense of how you see it today. Um, I I remain very proud and very committed to what I do because I think it's so important. And I think I bring a voice and I bring uh, a a knowledge to the to the business. So I, I remain very dedicated and excited about what we do and optimistic. I am, though, on the other hand, very concerned. I feel that we a lot one oftentimes when I'm working on stories at 2020 or you know Good Morning America any of the the, the broadcast platforms that I'm working at at ABC I feel that I often with the younger crowd you know <laughs> when I say that with the younger crowd I have to sort of stop and remind them of you know how we want to approach something because that of course um, confers more objectivity. Or, um, you know, just making sure that we do sort of a broad sweep in how we are presenting something for the audience to understand. And frankly, to be honest with you, also the idea that, you know, this is a very, very diverse country. And having come from the South and working in New York City, I can sometimes bring a a sensibility that I think sometimes my colleagues may not think about. I'm thinking about those folks down South, those folks who might be seeing politics very differently. And those are sometimes those are people that I know. And that doesn't mean that they are, you know, dunces and all of that. So I feel like I try to bring a sensibility that sometimes could be lost in in, in, in this climate that we're in. And I also think that, you know, the seriousness sometimes is lost. I feel like there's a lot of lighter thing, a lot of lighter stuff uh, these days than, than what I'm accustomed to and what we grew up uh, accustomed to. Some of those light stories, you know, we could get them like as a, as a you know, a show ender. But yeah. we will, and and I'm I'm deeply concerned about that, um, and I think that you know we we have to keep pressing. We have to keep pressing, particularly now in this environment that we're in, this very polarized environment. I think that it is even more important for us to remember that we've still got to try to be as objective as we can and present all points of view, even if we don't always necessarily like them. And I think that we all do that, and we've always done that. But I think it's even more challenging these days. So I'm concerned. But I also feel like that that at our core, and most of the networks at our core, we still do pursue those values. But the younger folks are coming up with Google and you yeah. know with uh, TikTok and Instagram, and I don't think that they see the fact finding in the same way that we do. Yeah, and it's all equal for them, right? Right. In terms of sourcing, and, yes. and TikTok for them is as credible as the New York Times or any anyone else that you would. Uh, associate with with doing research. Um, let me ask: being a network correspondent is not an easy gig. You right. know, I, I tell people that's your your bags at the door. You can get a call like that. You know, <laughs> you, you're lucky if you have a beat. But if you are a true kind of correspondent that bounces around, you start it at NBC in 1990. You're there for five years, and then you go to to ABC. 
Also, particularly for people of color, particularly for women, until lately, I will say, navigating corporate America and navigating network news is mm-hmm. not easy either. I'm curious, um, for one who has done it now for quite some time, uh, how that's been for you. Well, first of all, I didn't realize it had been as long as it's been. <laughs> so thank you for reminding me of that. Learned <laughs> about 15 years ago. Um, you know, it's been it's been interesting. I mean, I certainly came uh, up in this business knowing that as a woman, as a black woman, um, that you know the odds were sort of stacked against us because we were really uh, dealing with a lot of inequality um, at that time when I was beginning the business, and we didn't see as many women executive producers and senior producers and things like that, uh, that that would give you encouragement. So I knew that it was a battle and I knew that I had to work harder uh, to get, you know, that like, you know, half as far with that one position and, and work harder than some of my colleagues. I sort of knew that, but I think just like you growing up, that wasn't a surprise. I knew that was sort of the state of the industry and that I had to be better. I had to be um, more resilient. I felt like I had to have a little more tenacity because we didn't have as many of us. When I came to NBC, Cassandra Clayton was uh, on the beat there too, uh, working as a, as a correspondent, but she was leaving. So we we're losing a black woman and we're getting a black woman coming in, but we're not necessarily adding to those numbers in the same way. So um, I felt that, you know, I, there was a certain amount of pressure for me to do it, to get it right, to, to uh, represent. And so I, but I took that and I went with it and I wasn't angry about that because I knew that was part of the deal. As I went along, of course, we started to see more representation, more women. I remember, you know, Susan Zarinsky at CBS, Meredith White at ABC, Phyllis McGrady at ABC. There were these star women who were on the scene. Of course, Diane Sawyer and Barbara Walters and Carol Simpson and all these women who were um, making their stand uh, on air as well. It started to feel a little better and a little more comfortable and a little bit more possible. So as I went along, and I kind of think I just maybe I'm born with a, a sense of optimism anyway. Maybe that was just sort of what I picked up in my family or just who I am internally. But I I felt optimistic each step of, uh, along the way. So at NBC, when I went off to go cover the Persian Gulf War, and I volunteered to do that because I wanted to get my foot in the door and I wasn't getting good assignments. And I volunteered and this young reporter, you know, fresh in the company wants to go cover the war when a lot of my uh, veteran colleagues did not want to do it. That was a big uh, feather in my cap because not only did I go over there and get some great experience and tell some good stories, I came back with a newfound sense of, you know, not only confidence, but I think with uh, reverence, you know, amongst my colleagues and my bosses. So that was kind of a, a step up for me. And I recognized because I had that fire in my belly that the key to success for me was going to be about stepping outside my comfort zone, pushing, pushing, being ready to work, being ready, as you said, with those bags packed. And I did a lot of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, my, my um, romantic life suffered because, <laughs> you know, I just, you know, I'm dating somebody, but it didn't really take off because then I've got to go to, uh, you know, Idaho next week and I've got to go do this story and I've got to go to a prison and go interview this, this guy on death row. So that just sort of became my life. And, um, I, I, anytime I had a stumble, anytime I, I, I had a, a screw up on air, I saw that as an opportunity to try to get better. Mm-hmm. I, rather than lick my wounds and get so frustrated and, and, and distracted by it, I just thought, okay, the next one's going to be better. The next one I got it. Now I understand what I did wrong in that report, or now I understood what I could have done better. Mm-hmm. So I think for me, 
um, that lifted me and helped me because I think I projected this feeling of hunger, of, of, of excitement and intensity about what I was doing. So then when I did get the call from Barbara Walters at ABC saying, I've been noticing your work on um, Dateline. I'd love for you to come over and join us at 2020 because they were sort of expanding their roster. First of all, I almost fainted. <laughs> Deborah, this is Barbara Walters. You know, when I heard Barbara on the phone, but I also knew I was ready. I was ready to take that step uh, to a, a broadcast, a, a broadcast that I watched since I was a kid. And so I knew then, okay, it's incumbent upon me to step up even more. And it was very hard because those were the days of Peter Jennings and, yeah. you know, and Barbara Walters and all of those, you know, correspondents and anchors at ABC who were really, really at the top of their game. And I had to step up and be at the top of mine. And so it just challenged me. And I think along the way, it just pushed me to try to be better and try to be better. But I wouldn't get distracted by the noise. What, what was it like to, I remember when you, when you said that, I remember getting a note. They had done an um, article on me in the USA Today. And I got a note from Bryant Gumble. Oh. And I had admired Bryant forever. Now, I used mm -hmm. to wake up and watch him and try to take mm -hmm. little notes and see, yes. you know. Um, and it was so exciting to know that you are now a colleague and a peer. Um, what was it like to walk the halls and see Peter Jennings or get the call from Barbara Walters? What was that like? Because it's it's heady in the beginning. Yeah, it's heady. But I will tell you this. If I'm going to be, you know, candid, it was difficult because they were not warmest. They weren't the warmest people mm -hmm. because they were, you know, they were tough. Peter, Peter was very good at what he did, but he made it very clear, you know, don't come in here if you don't know what you're talking about. And, right. and, and, and he would challenge you. He would ask you these questions about a story you're working on or whatever. And it was almost like a trick kind of question just to play with you a little bit. But I think because he felt that the standard is so high here. I want to know you're ready. It was almost as if you had gone from, you know, the, 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 the minor leagues in baseball to the big league and, um, and not no shade to NBC because I certainly felt that I was doing that there. But if you remember at that time, ABC was riding high. Yeah. They were dominant. Were yep. And yep. so that was like, you know, that was the, the top of the game and Barbara was lovely, but she was tough. I'll never forget Ed, the first time I sat on the set with Barbara. And at that time, you would debrief with Barbara and Hugh Downs. Mm -hmm. So they would they would introduce your story and you sit there and you come out and you sort of talk about your story at the very end and what the latest is on it. And I sat there and I was sort of nervous and I was all done up and I looked great. And I had my notes and I was waiting to talk to Barbara. And Barbara uh, leaned over and said something to me like, you know, glad to have you here and so forth. And she grabbed my notes and she threw them off the desk. And I was like, oh, you, oh is this hazing? Some kind of crazy hazing? She said to me, you know what you want to talk to me about. Let's not sit here and read notes. Let's talk. Let's have a conversation. You talk to me about your reporting. And that was like a moment. First of all, I think she wanted to challenge me and say, I believe in you. you got to believe in you. Let's not you know, do that. Let's be comfortable. Let's be. But she was challenging me also to just feel confident about what I was doing. So there were some tough moments. It was heady. It was great seeing all of these people. But they, it, it was tough. It was tough. Network news is not fuzzy. It's not, it's not fuzzy, fuzzy. It not <laughs> by fuzzy. any means. And also, let's be clear, too. After they, you know, kind of pat you on the head and say welcome yeah. and all that, you are competition to a degree. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so they're only so warm and fuzzy other than, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, they, they, they look at you and say, hmm, I wonder if they're gunning for my seat. So exactly. It, it's, 
It's interesting. Swimming with the sharks, somebody said to me at one time, you're swimming with the sharks. And I and thought, wow, I didn't think and it's true. that way. I mean, yeah. as wonderful as the job is, politically, yeah. it's an ugly place. Let's just be honest. It, 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 is. it, it is what it is. Um, one other question before I, I bring in how your love life got a little better when you met this guy. <laughs> um, but, but let me ask you this. Um, I remember when I first went to NBC, there were a lot of Black reporters that didn't want to do Black stories. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to get pigeonholed. They didn't want to. Mm-hmm. And, and I conversely didn't mind doing them because I felt like, well, if I don't do them, they well, may not well. get done. Mm-hmm. I'm curious your thoughts on that, because there is a fine line of not wanting to be pigeonholed. Right. You say, look, I can talk about the economy just as well as this person, too. But you, right. there's an obligation, I think. For us to bring mm-hmm. stories from our community that get no shine. I think for me, I didn't really focus on it one way or the other. I didn't feel strongly that I don't want to report those stories, but I think I felt strongly that I just wanted to be in a category of I can report anything. So mm-hmm. I don't know that I felt comfortable in the very beginning of looking for stories in the Black community to tell, because I think you're right. I think those stories were difficult to bring sometimes and uh, would be lost uh, you know, on the ear of maybe your executive producer. I mean, there were plenty of times where there was a story that was very obvious that involved uh, the Black community, you know, some kind of environmental, you know, uh, pollution or, or something like that, that was very clear and, and, and those connections were made. But I think for me, I just made it very clear that I wanted to report on anything and everything. So I didn't necessarily go in that direction. I didn't spurn those stories, mm-hmm. but I didn't pursue those stories either. All right, let's get to the guy that turned that love life around. <laughs> and, and everybody, most people know that you and Al Roker have been married for quite some time. Um, just quickly, tell us about you know how how he met and clearly wooed you <laughs> in some way, shape, or form. Quite some time, twenty-seven years this wow. year, Ed. Twenty-seven wow. years. Wow. Um, you know, I, I kind of like to hear Al's version of the story because it's always quite funny. But um, Al and I worked alongside each other. And the way we met is that he was filling in on the Today Show for Willard Scott and I was filling in for Deborah Norville. And we got to know each other. And he knew I was this new young black reporter who had started. And he was very friendly and very lovely. And it happened to be my birthday or the next day was going to be my birthday. And he said, oh, well, you know, somebody taking you out to lunch or something. And I was still relatively new. And I said, no, nah, not really. And he said, well, you know what? Let's let's make a date. Maybe, you know, Friday or something. Let's go out. Um, now, Al was married at the time and he was just being very friendly. But over the course of time, we would bump into each other from time to time. And he was really lovely about just sort of wanting to make sure I was OK. You're this new reporter. Um, I kind of know what it's like out here. How is it going? So he was an ear that I could mm-hmm. turn to if something was going badly. And every now and again, something was. <laughs> and so I could relate to him. And I and the fact that he listened and wanted to listen mm-hmm. was, first of all, just really lovely. Over time, I moved. I, I joined the Atlanta Bureau and I'm in the Miami Bureau. And I sort of moved along and we stayed in touch. But um, that was sort of it. And then over time, he um, divorced and he or was in the process of divorcing. And I wound up moving back to New York. And we, you know, again, he would probably tell you he's thinking, wow, maybe one of these days we can go out. I'm thinking, he's a nice guy, you know, Mm -hmm. okay, Al Roker, he's great. And then the Barcelona Olympics were happening in 19, um, I I don't even remember what year, 92. And um, I asked Al, would you mind, I'm going to be gone for about three weeks, would you mind maybe going to my apartment and picking up my mail and putting it on the kitchen counter, maybe water my plants once or twice? He said, sure. 
Now, in his mind, he will tell you that he's thinking, this is my opportunity to make a move. Um, so when I came back home, he had left me some fresh flowers. He had stocked my refrigerator and was trying. I thought he was a nice guy. Like, that's a very sweet gesture. But uh, he did ask me for a date at some point after that. And we went out on a date. And um, it was a very slow burn, I would say. But over time, I just began to think, this is really, really a lovely guy. He, he loves his mother like you wouldn't believe. He, he's a very family guy, talks about his family all the time, um, has very similar values to me. I grew up in the South. He grew up in the Northeast. But both of us very connected to our families, very much interested in this work that we're doing. And so we just sort of hit it off over time. And before you knew it, he had sort of moved me. <laughs> you know what's great about Al Roker? And I say this, um, you know, not not for the Hollywood kind of glib line that so many people give. I don't know. And it's hard in this business to find somebody like this. I've never heard anyone say, eh, he's all right. <laughs> or, you know, he's he's a snot. Or, yeah. he, you know, I mean, yeah. genuinely, everyone mm. speaks so highly of Al. Mm. Um, mm. And, and we should note, um, Al had a little health difficulty recently. Uh, he announced he had some blood clots, but he is on the mend, we are happy to say. And and we should note that you were so sweet and kind to take time to keep this interview. Yeah. You're in the waiting room waiting for Al to get discharged. So just let everybody know, um, you know, that he's doing well and, and on the mend. Uh, we certainly are sending our prayers. Well, we are so grateful to say that he is on the mend. And yes, it's a very scary thing to deal with blood clots. And many people have written and, and commented on Instagram that they either have or know somebody who's mm -hmm. dealt with those. So it was very uh, scary, but we are so happy to say that uh, thanks to prayer, great medical team, and a great, great medical team and hospital here, that he has done well and is recovering. Um, he's we got. I'm trying to get him to slow down his his thoughts of where we're going. He's got to take it easy <laughs> for a little bit, but yeah, um, yeah. but we're just happy to say he's 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 doing well and responding well and. Hopefully we'll get him back to the owl that we all know. He's already making fun of me and, 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 you know, busting my chops a little bit. So that tells me that he's starting to feel like his old self. Let me ask you one other thing about it, two talents in the house. I don't I don't care how lovely Al can be. You know, we all have a bit of an ego if you're a talent. Um, mm -hmm. how, how did you guys or did you even maybe I'm being presumptuous have to manage that? Because, you know, everybody gets used to what talent gets. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. I'm wondering about that. It's it's something we have to calibrate regularly, to be yeah. honest with you. Now, we were very fortunate that, you know, I went over to ABC about the time we were getting married. So I was really happy about that because we didn't have that internal, um, you know, competition at the same network. And I did something totally different than Al did. Network correspondent, um, a news magazine correspondent. For the most part, he did weather and some celebrity interviews. Now his um, portfolio has expanded. But for the most part, we kind of stay in our separate lanes, mm -hmm. but we're also very defensive of our networks. So if I make a comment <laughs> about somebody on his network who I think didn't necessarily do a great job on an interview, he gets defensive. Mm -hmm. Or if I, if he makes a comment about something going on at my network, um, I get defensive. And there have been one or two times, not often, one or two times where we were up for an interview um, and, you know, somehow I was trying to pursue an interview and that person, there was a time where there was a very famous singer who uh, wanted to interview with Al. And I thought she and I had already agreed that maybe I was mm -hmm. going to do this interview. And next thing I know, she, I hear that Al's going to get the interview and he wasn't even pursuing it, but mm -hmm. it came up. 
Mm-hmm. And that was a major moment for us. And I remember <laughs> I the imagine. kids, I was upset and the kids were like, daddy, why are you taking mom's interviews? <laughs> they overheard us talking. So we've had a couple of moments like that, but I think for the most part, we've learned that, you know, what, what we talk about at home stays at home. Yeah. We yeah. can share those comments and we, but, but what's great about it is we understand um, each other and, and because we understand the industry and we know yeah. what's happening to each other and we are both pulling for each other. Yeah. And that's, that helps because yeah. you really have to understand what this industry is about. Some people yeah. outside will not understand either the drive or all of the yeah. things that come with it. And so that. Yeah. It's helpful. Last question before we get to your new project. Um, what's it like? I mean, when you get to Al's level, the scrutiny on on just, you know, the spotlight that stays on you digging into your private life. I know that you um, recently and I, I bring this up because my mom um, had Alzheimer's at the end of her life. She went into, mm-hmm. thank God, uh, her 80s before she got it. And thankfully, she never, never, never forgot who I was. Wow, that's which amazing. Really, it was it was a blessing because I don't know how I would have handled that. Uh, but yeah, you spoke yeah. of your sister who who passed uh, of, of uh, complications of Alzheimer's. I'm I'm wondering how um, it is for you to have a spotlight shown on your private life and um, the obligation sometimes, even if you don't want it, that is just naturally there. It is tough. And and I and I have to tell you too that my mother had Alzheimer's as mm-hmm. well as my sister. So it was like a double whammy for us. It was very tough. I'm I'm aware, I mean, you know, Alan, I don't see ourselves as like big celebrities or anything like that, but we are aware that we are in the public eye and that things do get picked up. And particularly, Ed, right now with uh social media, the mm-hmm. way it is, you know, we we know that if Al tweet something. I mean, I get on him all the time. You know, Al, don't tweet that. Al, don't put that out there uh-huh. right now because maybe uh-huh. somebody said something and he feels like being curt. And I no, don't do that <laughs> because somebody's going to pick that up uh-huh. and go with it. You know, years ago, that wasn't a worry, but now everybody's searching social media for something to go with. So we're, we're, we're um, acutely aware of that. And even with uh, Al's health crisis, I was very aware of that, too. And I said to him, you know, you need to just sort of pace yourself. And when you're ready to say something, because people will pick it up. I mean, it's it's shocking to me how um, every now and again, if there's something significant or insignificant, um, you know, some tabloid will pick up one of his Instagram posts and and then one of mine and they'll make a story. Mm-hmm. And so we are very much aware of that. And and so I I think Al, because he, you know, Al's just shooting the cut from the hip and mm-hmm. he's just kind of say whatever and whatever and think later because he's just the guy who's very transparent. I have to remind him regularly, pull back a little bit. Somebody may pick up on that. It may not come across like you want it to. And let's not cause a controversy where we don't yeah. need to. Yeah. So we're aware of it. I mean, as Al said, but on the other side, on the flip side, I get a great table at a restaurant. <laughs> so there's the responsibility, but and there's something the we said for it, right? There's yeah. the perk. There's yeah. the perk. Yeah. Let me let me get finally to uh, the new project that is upcoming. This is not your first rodeo for a book. In 2016, you and Al had a joint book. Um, been there, done that. Family wisdom for modern times. But you have a new book coming in May. Yes. Um, it's interesting. My mother was a teacher. Um, lessons learned and cherished. Uh, tell me about what the book is. You, you've also engaged a number of people to help you with it. I'm so excited about it. You notice I broke into a smile because this is <laughs> truly, truly a baby that I'm birthing. Al and I wrote a book together, but this is my first solo project. And I have kind of wanted to pin something. And I didn't know if I wanted to do, talk about my childhood or, you know, kind of the memoir route. And I didn't have anything really shocking uh, mm-hmm. to, to tell people that would sell a book. But I know that there are things that I'd like to talk about. 
And I just happened to be, you know, brainstorming with, um, you know, my agents talking about, you know, when I give speeches and I talk about my sixth grade English teacher, Mrs. Dorothy Hardy, and how she just lit a fire in me and just changed my life by saying that she thought I was smart and had something on the ball. And I will just never forget that. And every time I mention that story to people or just in, ch- in chatting with somebody at a cocktail reception, everybody lights up with the story about a cherished teacher. So I, then they said, I think we're onto something here. And, and it, it just became this idea of Rather than just, and I came up with the idea, I guess, rather than just tell my story, which, you know, is limited. I mean, I've got the teacher and I've got some others. Maybe I talk to other people and just find some, you know, well-known people, well-established people, people who become successes and hear their story about a teacher. And particularly, Ed, because coming out of the pandemic, there were so many stories about, A, the realization that teachers do such amazing work Mm -hmm. because parents were having to jump in and B, the fact that they were just overwhelmed and exhausted and just felt that they, you know, didn't feel appreciated. And then suddenly, you know, they started to feel like political pawns and teachers were just really under assault in a way. And I thought if ever there was a time to just herald teachers and talk about what they do and what they mean, this is the time. So I just started reaching out to anybody and everybody. And, and, and my, my publisher, um, Enscape, which is a, an imprint of Disney, thought maybe in a couple of years we should aim for it. And I said, no, I, we, this book can't wait. This book has to come out sooner than later. And they said, well, you know, I don't know. It's kind of hard to sort of do. And I said, listen, this is what I do as a journalist. This is what I do. I, I, I you know, you, and you know, we call them crashes. Mm-hmm. We're crashing a story, meaning we're going to work. I said, I will send, I will spend my summer crashing for this story. And then, of course, I started to get panicked. Like, can I really do this? Can I really do this? But everybody I turned to, Octavia Spencer is, has become a friend of mine because I've interviewed her a couple of times. I emailed her. Would you want to do this? Oh, my gosh. Let me tell you about Mrs. She starts going on uh, about her teacher. Um, I reached out to Danielle Balut, the chef, just because I know him and we sit on a board together. He starts telling me about his teacher in Lyon, France. Um, anybody I bumped into, Jimmy Allen, the musician, the country music star, I saw him at Good Morning America. I mentioned it. He said, oh my gosh, Robin Roberts, uh, Brooke Shields, whom I have. I just started reaching out to anybody and everybody. And I thought, I am on to something. And before I knew it, I just had a collection of people. And then I reached out to Oprah. And Oprah said, anything I am in life is because of teachers. Let me know when you want to talk. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And so from there, Ed, I just went, you know, almost anybody I asked said yes. Um, Spike Lee, Tanya Lee, um, uh, Melody Hobson, um, mm-hmm. a lot of these folks, you know, Al Roker gave me his story. <laughs> um, as I said, Robin Roberts, some of the folks at, at, uh, at Good Morning America. It was just amazing. And so this is, in my mind, a love letter to teachers. Well, indeed. And uh, coming this May, uh, lessons learned and cherished in any of us who've been blessed to have those people who genuinely educate us, but but more specifically, feed us, uh, That's feed exactly us with right. encouragement, you know, nurture us um, yeah. and give us what you need to step out in the world and really believe that you can make it. As, as Oprah said, Ed, that was a time when people, when teachers poured something into your soul. It wasn't about the uh, that uh, algebra problem and all of that that you might remember. It was about a teacher who poured something into your soul. And these stories are remarkable. They're uplifting. Some are a little heartbreaking. Some are a little funny. They are just great stories that I hope will encourage us to cherish teachers more and also to remind teachers of how treasured they are. Deborah, Deborah it's a pleasure to have you on. 
So my best to Al, and thank you again for making time today. It was such a pleasure. Great seeing you. Again, a big thanks to Deborah. You can catch her on 2020 and Good Morning America on ABC and look for her new book, Lessons Learned and Cherished, The Teacher Who Changed My Life, coming out this May. 100 is produced by Ed Gordon Media and distributed by iHeartMedia. Carol Johnson Green and Cherie Weldon are our bookers. Our editor is Lance Patton. Gerald Albright composed and performed our theme. Please join me on Twitter and Instagram at Ed L. Gordon and on Facebook at Ed Gordon Media.